Thank you so much. So good to be together. Uh, standing room only at the back, apparently. That's, that's awesome. Um, well, today's a special occasion because it's the first time that I have ever spoken to you as a 40-year-old. Reached that particular... I know I don't look a day over 41, but I, I celebrated that particular milestone uh, a couple of weeks ago. So um, uh, hopefully this, I should be older and wiser, more mature, and on um, all of that. And uh, I played football yesterday, and I'm feeling every single one of those 40 years. I really seriously am. And, um, you know, when you're kind of my kind of generation and maybe a little bit older, you still remember days before Facebook. Anyone here still remember days before Facebook and email? And anyone remember days before email? Yeah. I mean, when Carol and I were courting, we used to write each other letters. Do you remember that? Letters, stamps, like writing, pens. I mean, amazing. And um, I, I came across this uh, letter in the paper, which just kind of tickled me. And uh, the letter is entitled, My Own Social Media. And it goes like this. It said, Sir, I haven't got a computer, but I was told about Facebook and Twitter, and I'm trying to make friends outside Facebook and Twitter whilst applying the same principles. Every day I walk down the street and tell passers-by what I've eaten, how I feel and what I've done the night before, and what I will do for the rest of the day. I give them pictures of my wife, my daughter, my dog, and me gardening, and on holiday, spending time by the pool. I also listen to their conversations, tell them I like them, and give them my opinion on every subject that interests me, whether it interests them or not. And it works. I already have four people following me. Two police officers, a social worker, and a psychiatrist. <laughs> so, brilliant. There you go. <laughs> that was good. All right. Well, we are um, still in our series, Life on the Front Line, and we're going to focus in on a, a real specific issue this morning in terms of how we do life on the front line. And just to kind of set that thought up, I just want to say this, that we are called to be a family that changes the world. You can get excited at any moment, but we're called to be a family that changes the world. And actually, those two concepts are meant to go together. We're meant to change the world through being a family. <laughs> to do the second bit, actually, you've got to pay attention to the first bit, which is why Jesus said, listen, this is how the world is going to know that you're my disciples. By what? By the way in which you love one another. In other words, the way that you impact the world is actually through developing radical family that demonstrates what the Father's love really looks like. The world is waiting for the family of God to put him on display in a radical way. That's how we're going to change the world. It's actually through being a family that is countercultural. You want to change the world? Work on your family. Okay? He designs to change the world through our lives together. And because our enemy is incredibly predictable, his strategy is always the same, which is to divide family. That's always the enemy's strategy, is actually divide what God has set up to be the means of blessing for the world. The enemy divides families, God unites families. That's what happens. And the enemy's strategy is always to divide and conquer. And so for that reason, I want to focus on one particular issue this morning that's a, a divide and conquer issue in the family of God. And... Uh, in, in the middle of the night, I think it was at the beginning of last week, I was awake in the middle of the night, and I just felt God begin to speak to me. 
And uh, I often know it's the Lord speaking to me when he tells me things I wish he didn't. <laughs> don't know if you have that experience, but I do. I was just awake in the middle of the night, and he suddenly said to me, Phil, the church needs to be on its guard against the spirit of offense. Now, the Lord at that moment seemingly went to sleep, but I was left wide awake, <laughs> thinking, God, what do you mean? And I began to just think about what he said about the church needing to be on her guard against the spirit of offense. And also what happens in my life is often when God gives me a revelation, he tests his revelations on me first. You ever had that? It's beautiful. And so uh, maybe a couple of nights later, uh, in the middle of the night, I was aware that Carol, my wife, was was awake. And she came back into the bedroom, and in my kind of half-awake state, I said to her, is everything all right? Are you all right? And she's like, yeah, I just had a horrible demonic nightmare. At which point, I put my head back on my pillow and fell fast asleep. Now, for those of you who are married, that's not a good recipe for marital harmony. So I came down in the morning completely forgetting what had happened that night before, and I kind of passed Carol. I was going off to the shower, and she was praying in the front room like she usually does, and I just passed by, and I said, oh, morning, and she said, oh, morning. I thought, that was a bit frosty. That was a bit weird. So I went and had a shower. I was like, I wonder what's going on. I just can't think what's going on. So I got dressed. I started having my breakfast. I went and sat down. Again, it was a little bit frosty. And I was like, is everything okay? And she's like, do you remember I had that nightmare last night? You fell fast asleep. I was like, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. So sorry. Because often God will test his words on you first. In fact, after I told Carol what I was speaking on, we went for a walk for 45 minutes, and we offended each other three times within the space of 45 minutes. I also shared with my kids this weekend what I was sharing on. They said, Dad, we could offend you all weekend, and then you'll have loads of stories to share. It's like, yeah, thanks, kids. Thanks for that. Thanks a lot for that. You know, the reality is when you're in family... Offensive things are going to happen. You will offend other people. You will be offended by other people. You cannot avoid living an offense-free life. You are going to be offended, and you are going to give offense in your life. It is unavoidable. What matters are the choices that you make when you're offended. Because you are now powerful people, you're now sons and daughters of a father whose kingdom looks different, you now have choices to make in those moments when you face offense in your life. You can do something with those moments. You're not victims, you now are overcomers in Christ. Because actually, when we choose to operate in the different spirit to the world, we're really reflecting the one that we first signed up to follow, Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of a man who lived the unoffended life. The unoffended life. This is what it says about him in 1 Peter 2, 23. It says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is so countercultural to the world in which we live. To actually be faced with offense, but actually to operate out of the different spirit. That's the one that we're following. That's the model. That's the Jesus model. That's the how we show the world that we're Jesus' disciples model. By loving in the Jesus kind of way. By loving through offense. By coming through offense the way that Jesus did. Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, 
and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Overlooking offense is not a nice fluffy feeling. It's a powerful choice you make because of who you're following. Jesus. And it's so countercultural. And the reality is if we don't get to grips with how to respond to offense when we encounter it, we will just perpetuate the devastating effects of holding on to offense. Some friends of mine, um, good friends of mine, they're telling me their story a number of years ago. And uh, our friend, her sister, uh, was at a birthday party for her kids. She invited a whole family. A whole family came to this birthday party. And in the middle of this birthday party, in front of all the people there, her mother began to criticize her parenting. Now, if you're a parent, how many of you know that kind of advice goes down like a lead balloon, particularly in front of other people? And so this friend of mine's sister got incredibly, incredibly offended to the extent that she cut off all communication with her mother for four years. No phone call, no Christmas card, no invitations around to the house, no cups of tea, nothing. Four years, complete blackout silence. The effects of unresolved offense are devastating on families, both on your immediate family and your friendships, but also on the church family. When we choose to hold on to offense, it severs relationship. It stops us being able to operate as family. That's the effect of offense. And so I think holding on to unresolved offense is one of the biggest reasons that churches implode. Do you know that the church is much more likely to implode than it is to explode? The greatest danger to this church is not outside forces, but inside forces. Churches implode from the inside because Christians decide not to do the simple things well and love one another and work out their junk. And you may well be sitting here on a whole lot of unresolved junk. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to deal with it this morning. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. Because actually... When, when as a church family we, we choose not to resolve our junk, it's a little bit like putting rotting meat out into the sun. You ever tried to do that? I've not tried to do that. But this is what would happen if you put rotting meat out into the sunshine. Pretty soon, you're going to attract a whole lot of nasties that you didn't want around. You're going to attract a whole lot of flies, a whole lot of rodents, a whole lot of critters, just because you put your junk out in the wrong place. You've got to deal with your junk in the right way. And for some of us, because we're holding on to offense, we're wondering why we're attracting so much other negative stuff into our life. It's because you're leaving your stuff out in the sun where it shouldn't be. You've got to deal with it in the appropriate way. And so what I want to do in the time that we've got is just look at what are the roots of offense, what are the symptoms of offense, and what are the ways out of offense. Okay, so that's where we're going this morning. And the, the word offense in Scripture actually is very synonymous with this phrase, stumbling block. A stumbling block in the time of Jesus was literally a, a, a block of wood that people would put in front of someone who was blind so that they would trip over it, thus providing a cheap laugh. That was a stumbling block. And Paul, if you read the New Testament, he talks about not being a stumbling block. And that's what he's talking about. And stumbling block and offense are the same kind of words, really. And it literally means that offense trips us up. It stops us on the, on the walk that we're meant to be walking. It, 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 it halts our course. I remember once at school, the only ever fist fight I got into at school was when a kid who I found really annoying 
knelt down behind me as I was walking backwards in the school playground, and I tripped over him onto the, the, the floor, and everyone laughed around me. And I remember immediately feeling very humiliated, incredibly offended, and so I punched him. And we had this fist fight in the middle of the school playground. Now, just as an aside, I went home and told my mum and dad what had happened. My mum's response was, oh, are you okay? That was a bad thing to do. Don't do that again. My dad's response was, did you win? <laughs> now, literally, that was the first question he asked me, did you win? It's just the difference there between men and women, but there you go. So offense is stumbling block. It trips you up. It halts you on the course that God has for you. And so what are some of the roots of that kind of offense? Well, firstly, the first way that offense gets in is through unfulfilled expectations. We get offended when people don't do the things we expected them to do. Unfulfilled expectation. Someone once said this, that assumption is the mother of all frustration. In other words, when we assume that so-and-so would do such-and-such, and they don't, suddenly it creates this air of frustration and ultimately offense if we allow that frustration to grow in our hearts. Incredible story where that happens in scriptures with John the Baptist. John the Baptist in the New Testament, he was Jesus' cousin. And John was called to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was called to prepare the way for Jesus' coming. And John the Baptist, out of all the men in the time of Jesus, had the clearest revelation of who Jesus was. So much so that as he sees Jesus approaching at the River Jordan, he points at Jesus and says, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He must become greater. I must become less. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is the one that you've all been waiting for. This is the Messiah. Incredible revelation of who Jesus was. But then you fast forward the story from John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 11, we find that John has been put into prison. John eventually gets beheaded after he's been put in prison. And John seemingly is so affected by his circumstances that he sends his own disciples to Jesus to ask this question. Are you the one or should we expect somebody else? You ever, you ever just stop to think how remarkable that question is? At the beginning of the story, you're the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Fast forward, are you the one or should I expect somebody else? What's happened between those two events? Well, we find the answer in Matthew chapter 11. Because Jesus sends a report back to John the Baptist in prison. He says, go and tell John the Baptist what you see. The lame walk, the blind see. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus is saying to John, John, you got offended because what you expected would happen hasn't happened. You expected maybe that I would visit you in prison. You expected maybe I'd send you a Christmas card. You expected maybe I would send at least some kind words for your cousin. He said, John, blessed is he who's not offended by me. And what happens when our expectations are not met is that it leads to all kinds of disappointment. There are many things, many things which happen that we expect that don't happen. I expected that I would get more affirmation from that person than I did. I expected them to be a better friend than they were. I at least expected a visit or a phone call. It's interesting how sometimes the little things speak the most. 
I expected to be invited to that event and I wasn't on the list. I expected kind words, but I got harsh ones. I expected an opportunity, but that opportunity never came. I expected to be included, but I wasn't. I expected them to understand how I felt, but they didn't. I expected them to meet my needs. I expected them to show more thanks for what I'd done. You know, the reality is that sometimes our expectations are right, sometimes our expectations are wrong. You know, I could say to you, I expect Carol, my wife, to be faithful to me for as long as she lives, and I expect her to be perfect all the time. How many of you know in that sentence, one expectation is right and one expectation is wrong? And sometimes we get disappointed, irrespective of whether our expectations were right or wrong. Sometimes people break expectations that were unreal and unfair in the first place. Sometimes people break expectations they should have fulfilled. Both are true. And what happens is that unfulfilled expectation leads to disappointment in the heart. And it's the great enemy of faith. Unresolved disappointment is the great enemy of faith. There is a space created in you that's designed to believe God for great things. But it's that same space in your heart where unresolved disappointment clutters up. They live in the same space. And what happens if you don't deal with your unresolved disappointment about unfulfilled expectations is that you begin to downsize your faith and upsize your disappointments. And you've got to deal with one in order for the other to grow. You want faith to grow, to change the world, to believe the things that God says. You've got to deal with the things that are gumming up your system and stopping you from believe God. Because what we end up doing, we play the safe game and we downsize our dreams. And we play it safe. Second way that offense gets in is through wounded pride. When we feel humiliated and we feel like our pride has been wounded, we get offended. And we have internal reactions like, do you realize who I am? Do you realize what qualification I have? Don't you realize how many times I've done that? Don't you realize I could do that just as well as you? Don't, don't you realize who I am? Our pride gets offended, and therefore we carry offense and resentment towards other people. I had a great story this week from a friend of mine called Dave Devonish. And Dave is a brilliant guy. He's one of the most gifted leaders I think I've ever met. He's an incredible apostle, planted many churches, oversees hundreds of churches in the Muslim-speaking world, the Russian-speaking world, the English-speaking world. I mean, he's an incredible, incredible guy. Written incredible books, delivered incredible teaching, raised up probably hundreds and thousands of people in his lifetime. And he was telling a story last week of how he traveled to China with two other guys who are very famous Christians in China. And he said he went into meeting after meeting with these two guys. And in every meeting that he went to, at the end of the meeting, all of these Chinese Christians would come up and form a queue to get selfies taken with these two other Christian men. And they had no idea who he was. And in fact, at one point, they started saying to these two other guys, oh, we love your books. Your books have changed our lives. Thank you so much. You're so awesome. And then they turned to my friend Dave and they said, are you their publisher? Are you their publisher? And this guy literally has planted churches all around the world. Are you their publisher? And Dave just had a smile on his face. He's like, I loved it. It was really funny. 
And you see, when your sense of identity is not rooted in pride, you can handle people overlooking you. Or actually, those moments where you feel slightly humiliated or don't you know who I am moments. Because actually, your security is in this, not in this. But when we have our pride wounded, it can lead to doorways for offense. And then the third route for offense is unkindness. Unkindness, because when people are genuinely unkind, and sometimes when evil things happen to us, it is offensive because it is wrong. Sometimes things are genuinely offensive because they were never meant to be that way. And I think very often in those moments, we have this attitude of, I have every right to be offended because of what you did to me. I, have, I am justified in feeling offended, and I am going to stay offended until I get my own back, because that's justified. Wrong for wrong, right for right. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That's even in the Bible. That's the attitude we have, isn't it? When actually unkind, evil things happen in our life, when people violate our trust, it can be incredibly damaging. And it's not okay for those things to happen in our lives. It's not okay. But you know, even in those moments where unkind things happen to you, you still have a choice. You can either choose to react like a victim, or you can choose to react like an overcomer, which is what you are. And again, this is the Jesus way. This is how Jesus models doing life. I mean, just think of his relationship with, with Simon Peter, one of his closest buddies, one of his closest friends. And in the moment of Jesus' greatest need, when he needed, when he needed Simon Peter most at his side, encouraging him as he went to the cross, what does Simon Peter do? He denies his best friend three times. What's Jesus' response? Does he justifiably hold on to his offense? No, at the first possible opportunity, he looks to restore relationship. And give forgiveness. That's the Jesus way. You're not victims, you're overcomers. You've got something else to give and bring to the party. So these are some of the roots of offense. And what happens is that these roots begin to display certain symptoms. And I'm I'm about to read to you a very ugly list of symptoms. But there's good news coming afterwards. All right? So here's the ugly list of symptoms. Firstly, here are the passive-aggressive symptoms of unresolved offense. These tend to be the symptoms that happen underground. Firstly, withdrawal. When we get offended, often our first response is to withdraw and back off from people, refuse to engage relationally, and we allow our wounds to fester in private. Because it hurts, we decide to withdraw. Ultimately, withdrawal leads to people leaving friendships, leaving churches, leaving marriages, even leaving their faith. I wouldn't be surprised if half the people in this room at some point in their life have had the little thought in their head, it would be better off if I just left. Because that's the enemy. He loves to get us withdrawing from one another. It's a response to offense. Another one is resentment. We begin to resent people when they've offended us. We particularly begin to resent them when God seems to bless them and not us. We think that's so unfair. How can he bless them? They did this. They said that. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. How can God bless them? And we begin to resent people. We begin to hold on to that in our heart. And resentment is the evil step twin of bitterness. 
If you don't deal with resentment, it will lead to bitterness. It just will. Hebrews says this, See to it that no bitter root grows up from among you that will defile many. In Hebrew, any poisonous plant was known as a bitter root. In other words, the writer to the Hebrews is saying this, Listen, when you allow bitterness to grow, it's like a poisonous plant that when you ingest it, it kills you. Bitterness kills you. You've got to deal with it. It's like spiritual poison. Distrust. Offended people tend to lose trust very easily when expectations aren't met. Ultimately, it can lead to difficulty following people in authority, and it can develop a highly independent spirit. Proverbs 18.19 says, A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. You ever spoken to someone who's carrying a lot of offense? Try and give some kind advice or wise counsel, and you feel like you're coming up against an unyielding city. That's what it's like when you carry offense, because our distrust of people causes us to just not want to hear what they want to say, even if it is for our best interests. Moodiness. Anyone here ever been moody in their life? <laughs> what happens when we get offended? is that rather than talk about it with one another, we punish each other into behavior modification by appearing moody. It's called control. We try and control each other by moodiness rather than talk about it honestly. We say, if I, if I put the grumps on, then I'm going to get what I want. You know, if I look really sulky and uncommunicative and withdrawn and kind of sobby and self-piteous in the corner, maybe actually I'll end up getting what I want. It's called behavior modification through control, your emotions. It's unhealthy. There are also the active aggressive response to offense. Yeah, I told you it was an ugly list. Gossip. Gossip. Sometimes what we do with our offense is that we start to share it with others. Often in our small group. Often with our close friends who share the same frustrations as us. We begin to grumble about the church. We begin to grumble about so-and-so. We begin to spread our, our stuff around. <laughs> we gossip. We build case files. <laughs> you know, what happens when you live with unresolved offense is that you start to build cases against people and you actively look for other ways in which they're trying to hurt you. Basically, you try and prove why it's right that you feel like you're feeling. And you start to make mountains out of molehills. You suddenly spot little things that you never would have spotted before and you start writing lists. And then you start checking them twice. And then you, you, you realize they are definitely naughty and not nice. That's what we do, we build case files against people. Ha ha, you did it again. That just proves that I'm right in feeling how I'm feeling. I'm gonna hold on to my offense doubly tight now. I've got a case file. And then the last thing is rebellion. Ultimately, if you hold on to offense, it will lead to rebellion, which is the attitude, I'm not going to do what you tell me. Even if you agree with what they tell you. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not going to join that group. I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to give my money. Who are you to tell me what to do? I'm going to rebel. Often, if that is your response, there's unresolved offense in your heart. It's an ugly list. So what's the way out? Firstly, 
You need to remember that we are all original offenders saved by grace. And it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So the reality is, if you want to live in the Jesus kind of way, you need to live a Jesus-centered life, where actually you take yourself less seriously and you take him more seriously. And you put him at the center. You put the gospel of Jesus Christ at the center of your life so that it changes your worldview and your outlook in terms of how you react and respond to other people. The Jesus model, the Jesus way. You know, the gospel story is this. You were bad and God saved you in spite of yourself. And so the reality is, is that there are two sides to the gospel story. The second side of the gospel story is you are now a son, you are now a daughter, you are now an heir with Christ, you are amazing, God created you to be incredible. The first side of the gospel story is this, you were a dirty, rotten sinner deserving judgment and yet God saved you in spite of yourself. That's the first side of the gospel story. And grace will never be amazing to you if you stop remembering the first side of the gospel story. You receive mercy not because you deserved it. You receive mercy because your Father is merciful. And God, remember the gospel. Titus 3 says this Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil, envy, and we hated each other. But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. Tim Keller says, this is the gospel. You are so lost, flawed, and sinful that Jesus had to die for you. And yet so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for you. That's the gospel. If you struggle with offense, you've got to put the gospel right in the center of your life. Say, Jesus... I've received mercy, therefore I can give mercy away. That's the way to live. Got to remember the bloody cross on which Jesus was sacrificed. Secondly, second way out of offense is to realize that forgiveness is the doorway to your own freedom. (laughs) The person that unforgiveness hurts the most is yourself. And what happens when we choose to hold on to unforgiveness against people who have offended us, we are ultimately shaking our fist at God, saying, Jesus' sacrifice was not enough for me. I want something else. That's ultimately what an attitude of unforgiveness is saying. It's saying, Jesus' blood is not sufficient to deal with sin and junk in my life. I want something else on top of that. I want my own blood. And unforgiveness is... Not a natural response to the grace of God. Colossians 3 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, I know a friend who once told me her story, and uh, for the first uh, 15, 16 years of her life, she was sexually abused by her grandfather. None of the rest of her family knew about it. She wasn't able to tell any of them. And she told me this story how when her grandfather was on his deathbed in the hospital, she went to visit him. She was a fairly new Christian. And she visited her grandfather who'd abused her all her life, been the source of much misery and pain. 
And it was just her and him in the hospital room. And he had a moment of consciousness where he was awake. And she just said, Granddad, I want you to know I completely forgive you. And I release you from everything that you've ever done. At which point he said, what have I ever done to deserve this? Why am I sick? Why am I in this hospital bed? I've done nothing to deserve this. At which point he had a massive heart attack and he died right in front of her eyes. Do you know, when you choose to forgive someone, primarily the person that you're releasing is yourself. Because what forgiveness isn't doing is condoning behavior that is evil and sinful. Sometimes we hold on to unforgiveness because we think, if I forgive that person, it's like I'm saying what they did is okay. And that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is releasing people into God's hands and saying, Father, I commit this person into your hands. You do what is just and right. But I release them. I release any debt they owe me and I give their debt to you. You decide what to do with them. That's what forgiveness is. And in those moments, God gets to decide what happens. And in that particular instance, he decided very quickly. Guys, for some of you, it's time to release people. You've got to let some people go. You are holding on to debts. You're holding on to junk. I tell you, the person that's hurting most is yourself. Because unforgiveness is like a prison. And in the prison, you will eventually rot if you don't deal with your stuff. And release people, even people who in your eyes deserve judgment. You've got to leave the judgment with the Lord. He's good enough, he's just enough to do the right thing. Give it into his hands. Thirdly, honor creates a highway for life. You know, honor looks like giving unconditional love to people who don't deserve it. And if you want to create a highway of life in your relationships with one another, it's going to look like honoring behavior towards people who don't deserve it. Do you know, we don't give honor because of people's performance. We give honor because of people's identity. That was a good point. I'm going to make it again. We don't give honor on the basis of people's performance. Oh, you did something that I agree with. Therefore, I will honor you. No, actually, honor... Biblical honor is much more powerful than that. Biblical honor is honoring someone just for the fact that they are made in the image of God. And therefore they have value because God at some point decided that that person should live and that they should bear his image and that they would have value because he made them. And so we give honor because of people, because of people who they are, not because of what they do. Therefore, we can create highways of life in our relationships with one another where we don't get offended and unoffended with people on the basis of what they do, but we give honor that is biblically rooted. Next, clothe yourself with compassion. Colossians 3 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion. Do you know, it's a deliberate act to clothe yourself with compassion. What happens is that hurting people hurt people and are easily hurt by them. I'll say that again. Hurting people hurt people. Which means that sometimes when people do things that offend you, it's not because their motives were bad, it's because they're broken. 
Hurting people hurt people. And Colossians says, you and I need to clothe ourselves with compassion, which sees the best in one another. Don't always accuse somebody's motives just because they didn't or did do something. Sometimes there are other factors at work. And when you look through the lens of compassion, it will help you to act appropriately towards them. Judgment looks down on superiority at people and says, I would never have done it that way. Compassion comes alongside people and tries to understand them. And we're to act with compassion. My daughter is the most brilliant at this in our family. Often when we're talking about situations, she'll be the one that says, yeah, but you don't know what's going on in that person's life. You don't know what they might have been thinking. You don't know what kind of a day they might have been having. You don't know what circumstances they're in. Maybe they're really hurting, and that's why they said that. That's almost always the first lens that she sees people through. It's such a provocation. But those are the kind of questions that you ask when you look through the lens of compassion. Maybe there's something else going on in that person's life that I don't know about. I am not going to react in judgment. I'm going to react with compassion. Next, and time is nearly done. Relationship is more important than being right. Do you know, offense starts to lose its grip when we fight to stay connected to people that we love. The highest goal is not that you're always proved right. The highest goal is you keep your heart connected with one another. That is so important. Just if, if you are a parent, I mean, this is one of the best bits of advice I can give you as a parent, is learn to build relationships that are built on heart connection, not just on keeping the rules. If your highest standard is your children keeping the rules... It may not go so well for you. You've got to keep your heart connected because actually we are training our children how to make powerful life choices. But there comes a moment where you have to let them make powerful life choices. And they don't always make the kind of powerful life choices that you wish they would make. And you have decisions at that moment. Am I going to keep my heart connected even though I disagree? Or am I going to lay the law on you? You've got to fight for heart connection. It's so, so important. And then lastly, allow potential offense to reveal your heart. Sometimes I believe God allows us to come face to face with situations that cause us offense because often it's only when our mind is offended that our heart gets revealed. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, used to say this, I purpose that I'm going to turn all of my critics into my coaches. In other words, he said, there's always something to learn. Even when an unkind word has been spoken, there's always an opportunity for me, if I walk humbly with God, to learn something. And I tell you, if you will posture yourself like that, even moments of great difficulty can turn out for your advantage. Guys, our time has run away, but I want us to leave some time just for a response right now. So can you just close your eyes where you are, and let's just take a moment to respond to him.